Thank you. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. And uh, it is lovely to be here in this position, <laughs> speaking and opening up God's Word as well. As you know, we've been following um, Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. And uh, we are drawn to a close now. We're in the, the final chapter, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 6. Uh, verses 10 to 20, where he speaks and uh, uses the analogy of the armor of God. Um, before we open it up, um, it's such a familiar passage. To many of you, maybe have been Christians for a long time. It's one of those passages that you might have heard or read early in your, your Christian infancy. And it's one of those passages that kind of sticks with you. And I remember for myself, um, I was fascinated by it when I first uh, read it, when I first heard somebody speak on it. And it's one of those ones that kind of just sticks in your head. You know, and it, it resonates also because I remember from when I was a kid, I used to love going to the Kelvin Grove Art Galleries in Glasgow. And they seemed to have everything in there. You know, and it had, there was three exhibits that I loved. When I always went in there, I made a beeline. That sounds like a pun for what I'm going to say. Um, into the dinosaur exhibit. Because in there it was a glass beehive. <laughs> I loved it. I think it was a fascination. You could see all these bees crawling over the, the other side of this screen. So it was a bit of the kind of thing. I wonder if what ever happened if the glass broke. <laughs> but it never did, thankfully. But anyway, so that was one of the things. But the other thing that I spent most of my time in was the armory. He went upstairs, and it was, I was fascinated. It had uh, suits of armor. Most of them were medieval, German and such like. But there were other suits of armor from other cultures and other periods. And I was just fascinated by the, the intricacy and how they were made and how they were fashioned, how they were designed to cover and how they were joined. And they were purposely made to protect the body, yet enable it to be effective as well in battle. And so here at the end of Ephesians, Paul, it seems in some sense he, he's almost writing a different book, but he's not. And this is sometimes the danger with the armor of God. We often have a tendency to tear it out of the rest of the letter and take it as almost like a, a tract in itself, a singular book. But it's not. Because really what you find is that Paul has taken everything that he's written previously and he's almost like he's condensing it into these ingots, these uh, emblems that adorn our whole life. So with that, let's open up Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading verses 10 to 20. Uh, if you would like a Bible, we have two here at the front, and our marvellous uh, Bible monitor, Robert, will give one to you. There's one there. It will also come up on screen as well. So with that, let us read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Amen. Amen. And I make that my prayer this morning as well, that you would pray that I would speak words given me as well. I must admit, I have struggled uh, with preparing for this passage. I don't know whether it was because of the the familiarity of it, or whether it is because it does talk about spiritual wrestle and battle, to some degree that we're all engaged in, though I would suspect that it is unconscious to a large part, but we are engaged in a spiritual battle. As I said, Paul's analogy of the armor, it's the condensing of everything that he has written previously. It's almost we would benefit if we start at the back of Ephesians, (laughs) read chapter 6, then go back and read chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and so on. Because what Paul is doing in this final chapter is that he's taking everything that he said previously and he's making an application of it. This is why this is so important. You know, if I was to stumble into a field of war as I am, I would be unprepared and I'd be taken down quite easily, I would imagine. But yet, if I knew the the environment, the circumstances in which I find myself, I would then be more uh, consciously and deliberate in preparing myself and taking hold of the resources that God has given me. And he has given them to us, each and every one of us. The armor of God is ours. You know, sometimes I'd love the idea, you know, imagine myself as some kind of powered up power ranger, you know, dressed in my fancy suit and all the paraphernalia that comes with it. But there isn't a mystical armor sitting in Mount Sinai waiting to be found somewhere. What Paul is doing, he's taking everything that is of God and he's saying, this is what you are. This is what you have. You are prepared. Make use of it. It's interesting that as he begins this, he repeats again and again. He says, put on the full armor of God. He says it twice, put on the full armor of God. You know, when you take that term, you take that verse, he's, he's trying to put something across to us. Be fully embraced and covered by Christ. No doubt you've probably been aware of the, the news story recently surrounding Shamima um, Begum and how she wants to come back to the UK, but yet, I think she hasn't done herself any favours. 
she's wanting to come back to a country, a, a state, but yet it's a country that she does not share its ideals. She's wanting, she's wanting to come back but carry her own, or the ISIL ideals, if you like. And unfortunately, as you wouldn't, well, I don't know whether it was foolishness on her part, I dare say that is what caused her UK citizenship to be withdrawn. <laughs> she didn't help herself. I don't know, maybe she will make it back somehow or another. But it serves as an illustration to agree that we can only be clothed in the armour of God if we are submitted to God. I cannot claim the armour of God if I am not first surrounded and owned by Christ. If his ideals aren't mine, then it's, it's a fantasy, it's a dream. I, I have no access to the armour of God because I am first not found in Christ. The armour of God, what is it really? It's not, as I said, some magical uh, physical armour. It is the, the totality of Jesus in us. When we give our lives to Jesus, we are clothed in Jesus. We are in Jesus. He is in us. He is around us. He is everything. And the nature of Christ is given to us. And therefore, you could use the terminology, yes, I have the armor of God, which is God himself. You know, in the story of um, when David uh, encountered the Goliath, um, the giant Goliath, you remember how Saul was saying, oh, but you can't go out like that. You've got to put on an armor. And he tried to put on Saul's armor, and it was ill-fitting, and it was cumbersome, and it was just awkward, and it was silly, and it didn't work. And so it seemed that David went out into the battlefield defenseless. He had nothing. Well, he had a slingshot. But yet he was more protected and clothed than Saul ever was. Well, as Saul had departed from God, David was fully in God. And therefore, he was protected and covered by the armor of Christ. And that's what it is to have the armor of God. It is to be in Christ. To be in Christ. He is my covering. He is my everything. I am his and he is mine. You know, remember Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. You will never amount to anything. You will never achieve anything unless you remain in me. You know, the scripture is full of analogies, but they all say the same thing again and again. We have nothing without Christ. And without Christ, I do not have the armor of God. You know, when you look at the armor, and as Paul begins to uh, attach these uh, descriptions to the various aspects of the armor, when you read it, you think, well, obviously, yeah, I can, I can see where he got that idea from. He's been surrounded by Roman centurions for most of his missionary life. He's been chained to them. He's been escorted by them. He's been in prison with them. I think he's literally been handcuffed next to one as he's been under house arrest. You can say, well, yeah, he's definitely familiar with what a Roman soldier looks like. <laughs> he's been escorted with, by one for, for years. And I dare say that has influenced this illustration. But actually, when you read what Paul's actually saying, he's looking further back. From a child, it would have been ingrained in him because God himself is described as a warrior. Way back in Exodus, 
when God revealed his glory to Moses. It says, oh, first before that, it said to Moses, it, the Lord says, the, the Lord is a warrior and Yahweh is his name. Also, uh, in the, the passages I was drawn from was, and as Paul was drawn from, was Isaiah 11, verse 5. It says, Also, righteousness, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Isaiah 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance of clothing, and wrapped himself with a zeal as a mantle. You could see where Paul has drawn his imagery from. This is the person of God himself. This is the aspects of God's character, of God's nature that he is adorned in. And this is what he's calling us to be adorned in as well. This is how people are to recognize us. But this is how the enemy should recognize us as well. We are adorned in the characteristic, in the features, in the natures, in the attributes of God himself. That sounds like a tall order, doesn't it? I can't conjure them up. <laughs> but the wonderful thing is, we have them because we have Christ. We have Christ in us. And so we are clothed in Christ. And when God looks at us, he sees us adorned in the very nature and the likeness of his son, Jesus. You might not think you're brave. You might not think you have courage. You may not think you have anything. In yourself, you don't. But in Christ, you have everything. Truth, the belt of truth. That, and it's strange that he, uh, he draws our attention to truth first because the tr truth as, as a belt, the belt itself, it wasn't actually an aspect of the armor, but yet it's the thing that holds everything together. And it's a poignant reminder that our very faith is founded upon truth. First and foremost, objective truth. Truth it is a reality. It's not a daydreamer's fantasy. It is something true and real. It is true that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. It's not some kind of abstract interpretation of Scripture. This is the facts. Our faith is founded upon historical reality. Not some esoteric dream world. It's real. Jesus lived and died and rose again. You can be sure that everything that we believe is founded upon truth. God is truth. It is intrinsic to his nature and his character. A very faith, if it's not founded upon truth, then it's nothing. But it is founded upon truth. But it's more to this meaning of truth. It's not just objective truth. Jesus didn't just go about with being a, um, an epitome of honesty in his life. He was, but he was more than that. The truth that it speaks about is the, is the life of Christ. The wisdom of God being lived out in the person of Christ. This is truth. This is life how it was intended to be lived. This is how God intended each and every one of us to live. In truth. A wisdom that is from above. A lifestyle that is from above. 
there's no hint of deception in it, there's no double nature of it. A, a lifestyle, a nature, a way of living in harmony and unity with Christ, with God, through Jesus. This is truth. This is a life. This is the truth that was proclaimed. This is the truth that God wants us to live by, that defines our lives. That is the truth that is to identify and, in, in a sense, encase and bind our whole life together. Truth is the nature, the, the, the wisdom, the very person of Christ himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said before Pilate, anyone on the side of the truth follows me, listens to me. This is the truth that Paul is reminding us of. Of, of a different nature, a different type of way of living, a different outlook on the whole of reality. This is how life is to be. Living in submission to God. Living differently from the, 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 the cultural suggestions and propaganda and the suggestions and the influences. No, I am living under the rule and the wisdom of God. This is the truth that identifies my life. And a wonderful thing it is... Not in truth in a subjective sense. It is truth in an objective way. It is reality. It cannot be changed. It cannot be undone. It cannot be called anything else. It is living under the rule and the grace of God, the fatherhood of God. And Jesus exemplified this in his whole life. You know, when we look to Christ, we don't skip forward to his death and resurrection. He spent 30 years living first. There's much that we can learn from that as well. His three years of ministry, how he conducted himself, how he lived. There is truth. And that's what he wants us to follow and live as, as well. Let it bind you. Let it encase you. Let it be the thing that holds your life together. He goes on to talk about the, the righteousness as a breastplate. It's perhaps the most significant feature of the, the Roman soldier's armor. And righteousness, what does it mean by righteousness? Well, it's, it's a, a, a very broad term, but most often it's associated with the just rightness. What is good and right. Again, it was an intrinsic part of God's nature and character. God is righteous. Jesus is righteous. And we, because we confess Christ, because Jesus is our Lord, because of his death, because of his resurrection, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. So don't get hung up about, well, I look back at my life, you know, I can't even say I'm particularly righteous. Yeah, well, you're right, you weren't, but you are now. Because you are declared righteous by God himself, because you have put your faith and your trust in Christ. So when people come against you and start bringing up the things of the past and try and put you down, and say, well, no, you're, you're just a phony. And maybe I was a phony, but I'm not anymore. Because I'm covered by the righteousness of Christ. It won't be you who'll judge me at the end of the age. It will be God himself, and he will declare me righteous. Because he has made me righteous. Because Jesus, when he died, 
He took my unrighteousness and he nailed it to the cross. I exchanged my sin for his salvation. I'm covered by him. So I have no cause to go about with my head downtrodden and thinking what well, I'm a miserable waster I am in life. I'm not. Because I am something else now. Something that is not of me. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but I am covered by something that is of him. His goodness. His faithfulness. His rightness. Can you imagine? It is a wonderful thing to comprehend that I have the righteousness of Christ. There's never been a more right person in the whole of creation. There's no one like him. And to think that his honor, his reputation, his standing before God is now transposed on me, man, that just blows my mind. I know I'm not worthy of it, but I'm not going to argue with it. <laughs> I'm going to take it and I'm going to hold it fast. And this is the wonderful thing about it. You know, a breastplate in a Roman soldier it had a constraining sense to it. I don't imagine you could have a slouch wearing a breastplate. <laughs> There's something about it that it constrains the person. And it holds back those tendencies within us. If I am called righteous, then I will be righteous. You know, what you believe about yourself will begin to affect your behavior. If I truly believe that I have the righteousness of Christ, I cannot then but help to find some expression of that in my life. Righteousness needs to be seen. It needs to express itself in what I do, how I live, how I conduct myself in relationships with other people. Righteousness needs to be seen. So when you consider the righteousness of Christ, it cannot but help change the way you behave, the way you live. Righteousness it will need some kind of expression because I am constrained by it. And I won't but help be able to help myself but begin to show acts of righteousness. Living up to what I am already being declared by Christ himself. We're constrained to withdraw from the former life that we once led and to live in a different way. I, wanna, I am righteous, but I want to show it off. <laughs> I want to show off God's righteousness. I want to do wonderful things. I want to do good things. I want to be a blessing to other people. Isn't that what Jesus did? He went around doing good, did he not? <laughs> Healing the sick, driving out demons, proclaiming the good news. You know, it shouldn't surprise us when you span your mind across the whole of human history, or certainly since uh, Jesus, that every any good thing that has been done in human history, the large proportion of it was done by Christian people. It's not a coincidence. It's righteousness bubbling up out of the person and taking the opportunity to express itself 
You know, what was the first law and the most important law? That you'd love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's righteousness. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And that will find expression in a myriad of different ways. Be righteous because you are righteous. I'm an awful blather, aren't I? <laughs> The gospel, your feet ready with the good news. You know, imagine that the, 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 the footwear of uh, the centurion back in the day would have been like the Doc Martens of the period. It enabled them to go, to walk, to march for miles, for distances, as opposed to like the leather thong sandals that everybody else wore. They were able to go distance, they were able to go so far. You know, and there's an impetus in this as well for us. We have been given the good news. I remember I read a story once, and it, when you read it, it's like, oh, but it's true, though. There was a, a prisoner who was condemned to death, and just as he was before he went to the gallows, the priest went in to speak to him, to try and convince him, or to change his way, or to repent. I don't know that the man ever repented, but he, he challenged the priest and says, you know what, if that was really true what you were saying, you know what, I would cross this whole land on broken glass to tell people. Yeah. And we know it's true. But would we dare to cross broken glass to go and tell somebody else? You know, the wonderful thing is that I can stand here and give you a thousand reasons why we should share our faith with people. But you know, the, the, the most powerful thing that will give you that impetus is if you just stop and take time to reflect on what God has done for you. If you were just to dwell, meditate, think upon the spiritual blessings that God has given you in Christ. You can't but help but feel, Lord, how can I not tell others? How, can, how dare I hold it back? You have saved me. You have rescued me. I cannot hide it under a bushel <laughs> or a bowl. You've called me. You've rescued me. But you've not said, well, we'll go and sit on the shelf for the next 50 odd years and I'll come back and take you to myself. He said, no, get out there and be salt and light. Make a difference. You know, somebody once said, you know, sharing the gospel is like one beggar tell another where he found bread. <laughs> That's where it is. I must confess, when I first became a Christian, I had this tendency in my own house to be a bit of a, oh, this is what you should believe. <laughs> I, was un I, was un I wasn't very gentle at times. <laughs> I wasn't wise the way that I spoke to other members of my family, but, you know, I learned to be more gentle because primarily it is good news. 
It's not news to beat somebody over the head with or club them to death with. It's good news. It's, it's, it's the gospel. It's, you know, I want to tell you something wonderful. Yeah. God loves you. And this is what he's done for you. You cannot but help people's reactions to it. But primarily, we want to deliver it in love, in good news. This is what it is, good news. You know, who would ever thought, and I'm, again, when I'm speaking for myself, you know, I find myself times going out in the streets at Inverurie, an absolute introvert speaking to strangers in the street. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. But yeah, I do. Because I recognize what he's done for me. And I cannot but help it. I can't keep it inside. I need to share it. And you yourselves will find ways in others of sharing this wonderful gospel with other people as well. I'm not saying you need to come out in the street with me. If you do, that's wonderful. <laughs> but find a way and means to let the good news be spread. Share it. Let people see it, hear it. Give them some opportunity. The shield of faith. You know, faith is the, the key that opens the door to everything, isn't it? It's faith not in myself. It's not faith in my resources. It is faith in, the, in confidence in what Jesus has done. Faith enables us to open the door to so much possibility of what God can do and will do in and through us. Remember, it's faith in God first. Faith in what he says. Faith in what he has done. When we hold to that, it, we have confidence that we can stand upon it. You know, I remember a funny occasion when I was still teaching. I had faith in a broken chair. I didn't know it was broken at the time, but I sat on it. And you can imagine what happened. The whole thing collapsed underneath me to the laughs of the kids in the class. We can have, it doesn't matter how much faith we have, but it's dependent on what we have faith in. And we can have an absolute and a sure faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And what he says and what he has done is absolute. And so it was with confidence then that I, I, that somebody like me can go out onto the streets and do the things because I have faith in Christ that he will do something. It's because you have faith in Christ that you make sacrifices and you make decisions that are sometimes difficult because you have faith in Christ. Even the very decision to choose to follow him is based and originates out of faith. Because without it, you would never have done it in the first place. <laughs> and it is our shield. When the accusations, when the, the derogatory comments come against us, we say, well, you can say whatever you like, but I am doing this out in faith. I am who I am because of faith. And the enemy can throw whatever he likes at me. But I will stand because I have faith in Christ. And nothing shall shake me or move me from that. You know, and here's an extra little thing. It doesn't comment in the passage, but remember here, Paul is talking about the, 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 the armor of a soldier. And a soldier is only a soldier because he's part of a greater troop, isn't he? He's part of an army. You know, one of the wonderful things about the Roman centurion was that they were powerful in themselves, but when they were come together, 
and they lifted up their shields. They became an impenetrable and a force that couldn't be stopped. And we can have faith for other people as well, particularly when they're struggling. We can have faith for people to be healed. We have faith for people when we pray. Yes, we must have faith of our own, but we can extend that shield, and at times we can guard others as well. So use it. I'm conscious of time. And it's, a, it's a wonderful passage. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, they're founded again on the Word of God. What is my salvation? It is knowing who I am in Christ. Knowing who I am in Christ. I am a child of God. I have been redeemed. I've been rescued by God. I know that. Not just in my heart. It is there in his word. And I'm so thankful that God has written it. <laughs> he has given it in written form. So that despite what everything else that's happening around me, I can come back again and again and again and again and again and read this and be reminded of this wonderful truth. I am his and he is mine. And what does Paul say? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Man, hold on to that. Train yourselves, you know, soak yourselves in the word of God. It is there for your blessing. Read it again and again and again. Absorb it. Jesus said, man will not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Make it your daily habit to read God's word, to search God's word, to grow in God's word. And you will be emboldened, you will be protected, but you will have a weapon as well to cut through the lies, the deceits, the deceptions of the enemy. And you know, and Jesus himself classically displayed this when he was in the desert, didn't he? How he was there for 40 days and he was tempted by Satan himself. How did he counter every, every temptation that came against him? How did he do it? Scripture. He, he, he spoke aloud. You say this, but this is what God says. So you can get lost. <laughs> it's a sobering thing. You know, and we all need it. We need in a sense, to continue to be living on a diet of Scripture. Because it's our protection, but it's also our means of fending off the enemy. You know, just a word from the Lord can save us from a situation. It can deliver us in a moment of temptation. If we're reminded, I remember... I remember what the Lord said. And the wonderful thing is, we're not alone. The He's given us the seal of his spirit. The spirit testifies within us as well, convicting us. We often say, oh, I didn't realize. You did realize. <laughs> remember the word of God. Use it. Live by it. And it will protect you. You know, I'm reminded when I first became a Christian. I remember for... Not long afterwards, it seemed like for quite an intense period. I almost feel like I was being 
spiritually oppressed. Accusations were coming against me, not necessarily from other people, but inwardly doubting who I was. God, you really, is this really who I am? But it almost at times almost did feel like it was coming out with as well. And the only thing, I, f- I felt at times I was hanging by the skin of my teeth. <laughs> but the thing that I was hanging on to was the word of God. What Jesus had done, what he'd done for me, the promises that he made. And here I am, still standing. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <coughs> I'm sorry, folks, I know that I've gone beyond my time. But I've said this to you before, and it's gone back to an earlier passage when Paul says that he prays for the Ephesians. He prayed for them. What did he pray? That they would know the the height, the depth, the breadth, the love of God in Christ Jesus. That they would grow to full maturity. And I remember I, I, I said to you, to pray for one another. Make that your chief prayer for everyone that you know who's part of this congregation, who's part of this church. Pray daily for one another. Pray that we would know the height, the depth, the breadth of the love of Christ in our lives. Because that was the the thing that will strengthen us, equip us, enable us to grow into the maturity the mature person that God wants us to be in Christ. So again, I'm, I'm just repeating what Paul has said. Pray for one another. Pray also for me. <laughs> I came this morning in much trembling and fear, thinking, will I have anything to bring this morning? I pray that what I have brought has been a benefit that will encourage you and build you up in faith. But fundamentally, and again, I can't stress this enough, continue to pray for one another. We don't, it's one of those things, I don't know how it works, but it does work. So I remember the old Christian Corrie Tenboom, she's passed away now, but you know, she said, uh, when I pray miracles happen, and somebody said, well, that's just a coincidence. And she said, well, when I pray, coincidences happen. (laughs) Pray for one another. The transformation, the things that will happen in our lives because someone is praying for us. Let's keep doing it. Let's pray that we continue to grow in the love of Jesus. And as we do that, we will be ready for anything that the enemy might throw against us. Amen.